Well, a handful of years ago, I was uh, in, in London with, <clears throat> with a group, and we were visiting uh, some, some mosques and uh, some Sikh temples and some Hindu temples as well. And we had just gone to a Hindu temple, and we were talking to the priests, and they were introducing us to their, their beliefs and, uh, and some of the gods that they were worshiping in that temple. And afterwards, on our way out, they handed us an apple. And uh, this apple had been offered to the gods, uh, presumably. And now any guests who came through the temple were being offered that apple that had been sacrificed to the gods as a token of um, just their gratitude for us visiting. Uh, And it's kind of a normal protocol, at least in that Hindu temple. And we got onto the bus, and I was looking at that apple, and I was thinking, should I eat this apple? Can I eat this apple? And I wasn't the only one doing that. Everyone's like, what do we do with this apple? We, were gonna, we had to grapple with the apple, you see. What do we do with this? And now, so for a lot of you, of course, this may be a situation you never face, that exact one. Probably for some of you, it, it, it might be. And so when we read a text like 1 Corinthians 8, which we'll just kind of look at one at a time, it seems maybe very culturally removed because of the issue that's being dealt with. But there are all kinds of applications that flow from it in terms of making decisions about doing the right thing. What do we do? Last time we got together, we were looking at 1 Corinthians 7, and Paul was writing to this church in Corinth about the question of whether people should get married. Should I get married or should I not get married? And they were wrestling with what's the right thing to do. And so we looked at that just a bit, and Paul kind of got to the point of it's not really a moral issue in this case, but let's consider some, some broader ramifications of should I or should I not. And part of the way that we sort of unpacked that particular passage was to get to the, the key question that Paul was saying we need to consider when we face many of the issues, wherever we happen to be, that are similar to something like this. And this was the key question that we came up with, that he was trying to kind of guide our way of sorting through, should I or shouldn't I do this? What is the right thing to do in light of my devotion to God in a fleeting world where my actions affect others? That was the the question we sort of unpacked looking at 1 Corinthians 7. So as we look at 1 Corinthians 8, we're calling this doing the right thing part Two, because he's still addressing that issue. Now, not with marriage, but now food sacrificed to idols. And part of the way that he said you've got to start kind of unpacking these issues was not just asking kind of the right question, but considering the components that we've been given to make these decisions. God's word is one. I mean, we're given these books of the Bible for for guidance and direction for how to live life. But it's not an instruction manual about what to do if any situation happens to arise. There are some that it it gives clear instruction on and certainly moral, moral parameters. But there are a lot of decisions we're still wrestling with. What does that mean for how I how I choose to do something that's before me? We go to God's word and then 
we suggested as well that there is community in context. What I mean by that is we are a community. I've got God's word. I'm trying to sort through issues. And God hasn't left me alone. We're in journey on a sojourn together in this temporary fleeting world trying to ask similar questions. So we have each other. I mean, this is a wonderful resource. This is, this is why it's such a great picture and image of many fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters. What do I do now in this situation? And I'm not alone in that. I think especially for people who maybe didn't grow up in a home where they were trying to answer questions around uh, God's word as authority and what it looks like to live in this world, you don't know. And so we have this. So you enter into a family system. And that family does exist in a context. The, the questions that we're talking about, maybe right here, are, are probably a little bit different than the questions that are being discussed over right now in other places in the world, whether it's in Asia or South America, because that's what there is there in front of them for the day. So when I say context, that's what I mean is how does this choice, how does this decision, the way forward, affect those within my community in the context where I happen to live, in the day and age where God has placed me. You know, you're all living here purposely. You might not like it, but this is where God wants you to be right now. Acts 17 makes that clear. God has determined the exact time you should live. So for those of you who wish you lived uh, in Little House on the Prairie days, you can keep wishing, but you're right here, right now. And the exact place where you should live, you're not here by accident. And so we take God's word with community and context, and finally, God's spirit, who indwells us. He is a guide reinforcing, I would suggest, what God's word has said in the context of community as well. And look, when you put all those things together, don't you wish the path was just as clear as the bell? Like it's all, sometimes it can get confusing, especially when I say community and you talk to one person, you're like, oh, dude, don't do that. And another person, like, oh, come on, you can do it. It gets, so there is, we do believe God's Spirit is, is reinforcing these things. And it's, it's not always a clear path, but oftentimes it's not also a moral choice. That's what Paul said with marriage. It's kind of up to you. And there are some things that maybe lead you toward an immoral behavior that helps you decide if you should or you shouldn't. So if you think it's, it's, it's always a straight path, it, it, it isn't always. But we have great clarity and also great freedom for what it looks like to move forward. Now, that sounds, you know, nice, but here Paul's giving a specific issue, marriage, and now eating food sacrificed to idols. And how do we let that help us and inform us for what decision we happen to make? So he deals with this, okay? In, in verse 1, uh, he talks about the specific issue because they've written to him and they're asking. Now about food sacrificed to idols. We know that we all possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up. But love builds up. Man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. But the man who loves God is known by God. If you're confronted with a question, do I eat the apple? And we'll talk about other contexts and other choices for that. 
Here we get to the motivating factor for this. The, the motivating factor, according to Paul, for doing the right thing in any particular instance is love. Because love builds up. So one of the guiding decisions from the beginning is, am I doing this in love? And you know that's a difficult question to answer because we've got so many selfish motives sorting out in the midst of us. So this is where I do think it's great to invite God's Holy Spirit to say, search me, try me, know me, show me if I'm doing this in love. If the guiding, motivating factor for wrestling with this particular issue for them, what about food sacrifice to idols? It's love. Now, this was a real issue in Corinth, food. Lots of idolatry, lots of temples with idols crafted out of, you know, different wood or, or stone. And a lot, there's, there's two contexts here. There are some feasts that happened in the temple. Should we participate in that? But also, parts of the animal sacrifice to these idols would end up in the marketplace. So can I eat even just the food I'm buying in the marketplace? And it was a real issue for these Corinthians because many of them had come out of a backdrop where they were engaged in idol worship. And when Christ came into their lives, you know, and Paul and others preached the gospel and said, look, there's only one true God in the person of Christ. These things are no gods at all. He's the exact image of God. And you have to cast away your idols and worship him alone. And they said, okay. You know, God opened up their hearts and they respond to the gospel and then they become a part of this community, but now they have to live life and the things they're engaging in on a regular basis are constantly making them ask the question, can I do this and still be faithful to my faith in Christ? So he writes to them about that. And Paul's building his argument that this really isn't a matter of right or wrong, but a matter of conscience. And because it's a matter of conscience, there's a measure of freedom But his argument in this passage is that love, which is the motivating factor, includes the wisdom to restrict our freedom for the sake of a brother. There may be times when doing the right thing in an issue that isn't a stumbling block for one person is for the other. And he's writing here to what he calls the stronger brother, somebody whose conscience is okay eating the apple and saying, You should think about, before you do that, what it's doing to your brother. Is it causing that person to conjure up images of a former life that they have said no to? So he's writing to the stronger brother. Now, he will write to the weaker brother, by the way, later, the person who says, you're sinning by doing that. But now he's writing to the person who feels like, I can eat this apple because God is the only true God. And almost in an act of defiance, There's only one true God. And the person over here is thinking, it's really struggling with, "Uh uh-oh, how can you do that? Paul says, before you take that bite, consider the, uh, the, the other person. Is it a loving thing to do? Let's say you're convinced you're right about something. It's okay to play cards, euchre, and, uh, and to dance. You know, afterwards, you're doing line dancing. Over at the Redeemer house, card night, dancing night. All right? 
Let's say you're convinced that that's an okay thing to do. Yet for another brother, these activities associated for them with a lifestyle that was abandoned when they became a believer. Because, because there's a strong identification with that with a former way of living. And so if we just say, come on over, everybody. And that person comes too, and they're just sitting there thinking, all I can think about is my sin in the past. And if that's the case, Paul's writing to the person who plays cards and dances saying, you know that it's okay to do these things. They're not activities that bring you close to God or take you away from him. Yet what drives your decision about whether or not to do it is not that knowledge, but rather a loving reflection on how it could affect the sensitive conscience of your brother. Love forms the foundation of Christian behavior and decision-making. Now, this is just one message. There could be another message about times, and there will be, to challenge somebody in their application of the gospel because perhaps they become legalistic, right? That's what this is. This becomes an issue of, of playing cards. Does that really make you right with God or wrong with God? What is it that makes you right with God? Is it your adherence to every single rule? Is it? How, how, what is your basis of being right before God? Eating an apple? Playing cards? Not eating an apple? Not playing cards. Doing the worm? Not doing the worm. You know? Whatever the case may be. Well, No, it is your faith in Christ alone. That is the sole foundation. Now, that is 100% accurate. And then when you lean into that and say, okay, now how do I live life in light of that? That's where we start having to wrestle with some of these discussions. We need to make sure that whatever choice we make, we're driving back to that one sure foundation. And so for the stronger brother, because that's the case, operating in love, there are often times when I may need to be sensitive toward the conscience of somebody else with what I'm doing. If it becomes slavery to you, Right? If you're just so shackled by what do I do or what don't I do, and you're constantly wondering whether or not you're offending somebody, brother, be free in the gospel. You're not that powerful. That person's salvation probably isn't going to rest on whether or not you start dealing out. At the same time, it's good that you're wrestling with that. You do need to consider the other. See, it's, it's not always, it's, this is why I say God's word, community context, the Holy Spirit but one of the things for you, if you're like, man, I'm a card-playing, dancing, gambling, Christian, smoking up a chimney, something like that. I, I, okay. I have to think about what that's doing to the other. And we need to. If that's not a factor in your decision-making, that's not loving. That's just taking knowledge about your foundation in Christ alone and using it like a battering ram for some very sensitive souls. Be careful. Because love builds up. And Paul says love builds up. It's such a beautiful picture. Love builds up. Love, love makes sure that the actions are, are creating something good and whole and, and building up. But knowledge just takes that and just swings it and crashes it down. I know better than you. What does knowledge do? It just makes you proud. Isn't it great to know more than somebody else? It feels good. It feels good because it's, it's stroking our, our, you know, our ego. Like, I am more knowledgeable than this person. Look at this guy over here. But pride destroys. 
God opposes the proud. And he gives grace to the humble. I think you probably want God's grace, right? Manifest in your life. That comes through the act of humility. And humility that, you know, the hummus, that's the, the root of the word. The, the cultivating sense of this is the ground where things can grow. Humility is, is the place where everything can kind of grow. It's an aspect of love that builds up. But knowledge does the opposite. You see, love, I would suggest, focuses on how can I serve the other. Pride just thinks about how I can serve myself, how I can look better. Pride wonders, how can I show them I'm right? If you ever have that, that question there underneath it, I would say it's, it could be, could be pride. How can I show them I'm right? Or alternatively, how can I show them they're wrong? Either one. In humility, the starting motivating question or factor for humility is, how can I show them love? How can I show them love? And look, I know love includes answers like what's right and wrong. I get it. But th this is the starting point. How can I show them love? And Paul says, ironically, look, you guys who think you know so much, even about your freedom in Christ, you really don't know that much. The man who thinks he knows something, you don't really know what you ought to know. Because the beginning of this whole walk with Christ gets us back to the beginning all the time. Which one of you knew so much you figured it all out and deserved to be worthy before God? Not a single one of you. If you think you are, then you've automatically disqualified yourself from it. Because we all have that starting point and we drive back to it all the time, but for the grace of God. We all started at a point of knowledge and we grow in that knowledge. That knowledge, if it's, it's building up pride in us, needs to be knocked back to the beginning point. And this week I heard Derwin Gray talk. He was a former linebacker for Indianapolis. He pastors a very large multi-ethnic church in North Carolina. And he, when he was first listening to somebody, uh, somebody who would uh, share the gospel with him, uh, a, form, uh, a teammate as well, who was just an evangelist, and sat down with all of his teammates and said, do you know Jesus? He's probably very annoying to a lot of people. But he came to everybody, do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus? And they'd circle back around, do you know Jesus? To Derwin's like, man, get out of my way. And eventually, I guess Derwin started thinking, huh, it's a legitimate question. Because things were happening in his life that, that were, he knew something was wrong. And even when this, this uh, individual shared the gospel with him too, one of the things Derwin said he was struggling with, he was thinking, how could Jesus love someone like me? Because he knew himself. He knew, his, he knew what he'd done. He knew his heart. He knew his motives. How can Jesus love someone like me? And Derwin said, I finally realized all he has is people like me to love. <laughs> That's it. It just dawned him. All he's got is people like me to love. Leveling ground is the gospel. And Paul gets us there, even in this next passage, as he starts trying to deal with this particular issue. Should he eat the apple or not? And I haven't even told you if I ate the apple, because you have to wait, just like I was suggesting for Nitya, to the end. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols. We know that an idol is nothing at all 
in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone knows this. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. So Paul's already answered the question. You're no worse if you do and no worse if you don't. Because that food is not what brings you near to God. But not everybody knows this. Therefore, consider those whose conscience is weak. Be thinking about the other. He gave us a motivating factor for doing the right thing. And now this is a theological framework for doing the right thing or making choices. And it's, it's kind of a lot, he says here. But he says, look, as you're sorting through should I or shouldn't I, consider for him that there's only one true God. And that in this case, idols, at the end of the day, they're nothing. They're representative of something, but in and of themselves, they're nothing. And, and food, eating the food, which was a cultural practice, that actually doesn't bring you near to God. Or it shouldn't even drive you farther away from him. Idols, just wood and stone. There are other places where Paul deals with spiritual realities that can be attached to these idols. But in and of themselves, they're just man-made materials. Somebody had a wood shop, took a chunk of wood, rounded up. Or somebody made a, a, you know, a mold in a factory. Whoosh, whoosh, whoosh. Cranked it out, slapped a price tag on it, you take it home. Pack it in your suitcase. And Paul says they aren't, they aren't really gods. They're not... They're just man-made objects that you've assigned realities to. And, and the knowledge, the real knowledge, he asserts, the, 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 the substance, the reality, is that they're just man-made materials made by people who were crafted by the creator God, the one true God who gave us the creativity to make something like that is the only one who really exists, is the one who's the three O's. Ooh, that we heard about earlier. He's the only one true God. He made you. He made, he made everything that exists. And he's expressed himself most clearly. I mean, here's the, the centrality of the gospel right here. In verse 7, or rather verse 6, there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and from, for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ through whom all things came, and through whom we live. He's driving them back to that central message. There's just one God expressed most beautifully in the person of Christ. He is the true source of your life, not these idols. You were rescued from that, so don't continue to think that that is the foundation of your faith. And yet, and yet, some people are still so accustomed that, that when they eat it, they can't dissociate that. And their conscience is weak. 
And Paul says here, it's not a moral issue in that respect. It's a matter of conscience. Whether you eat or not doesn't bring you close to God. Food in and of itself does not bring us near to God. No custom can. It's not the Jesus Plus plan that we're on. You know, like T-Mobile's rolling out some new thing. The Family Plus plan or something like that. It's not Jesus Plus observing a custom. It's it, Jesus. He is the one in whom we live and move and have our being. He's the centrality of the gospel. And we add these things to our detriment. And yet, there is a reality in that, that time where people were still wrestling with it. What do we do? And so Paul gives us some more guidance in the next verses. Uh, starting in verse 9, we read, Be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone with a weak conscience sees you who have this knowledge eating in an idol's temple. So here this isn't even just eating meat from the market, but in an idol's temple. Somebody with the freedom to still engage in that sort of social discourse. Won't he be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. You have the freedom to do it, and you can, but in the exercise, this seems to be that you're aware that somebody is present who may stumble by seeing you engage in this. You're destroying them because it's delicate for them. They're not in the same place you are with this. When you sin against your brothers in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Some pretty hard language there. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause him to fall. You know, Paul's kind of doing what he, you know, practicing what you preach. You got freedom in Christ. But he is so, and he'll do this in, in, in chapter 9 too, I do not want to keep anybody from seeing the truth of the gospel. So I'm going to make sure, as far as I can, that I even pull away from perhaps my preferences and my freedom in Christ to make sure I'm not the stumbling block for anybody else. I won't even eat meat again. You won't do it. But I, I can. I could. I mean, and maybe he will in private. Uh, I don't know. But he's saying, I'm going to make sure that my actions don't cause somebody else to stumble. See, he's, he cares so deeply that the centrality of the gospel is not confused by his actions. That's what's driving him. That's why he's motivated by love and and, and, and thinking theologically through can I or can't I, what's the right thing to do? And in this respect, I would suggest he's got a relational framework for doing the right thing. He's got theology, you know, he's got uh, awareness of the cultural realities kind of behind everything, but he also wants to think, how's this going to affect somebody else? Eating or not eating meat offered to idols, it's really not the primary issue. What it does to the conscience of the person eating and what it does to a brother or sister who observe it, observes it, that's what the primary issue is here. And Paul's addressing the person whose conscience is clean here. I can do it directly. Don't do something that, though you are free to do so, is a stumbling block to another. And like I said, later, Paul addresses the weak. The person who looks at someone else and says, 
How dare you play cards? How in the world could you possibly do that and say that you're a Christian? Oh, Paul's got some words for you too. But right now he's talking to those of us who are like, I got freedom in Christ to do whatever I want. It's sort of like Martin Luther who said, if you're going to sin, sin boldly. Go big or go home. He was, of course, riddled all the time with, can I be good enough before God? And when he discovered the truth that you are saved by grace through faith alone, in his context at that time, it just gave such tremendous burden off his shoulders because he didn't have to be so guilt-ridden all the time when he felt like he wasn't doing enough to please God. And in that freedom then, oh, he's practicing his freedom. And some people come out of that backdrop. If you've grown up in a, a place where it's just rules and regulations and legalism and you, you get the sense that I'm saved by grace through faith in Christ, it's this freedom and you can do a lot to practice that freedom. But you do eventually need to think about how is it, what's it saying to the other. Not just somebody out there, but your brother. Four times brother is used in this passage. It's a family relationship. It's a consideration for the people who are right there with you in the midst of it. How is it affecting the other? It's some, something to factor into our decision-making Process. No believer ought to assert his or her rights if it means harm to another. And again, I, I think this can become, we can become enslaved to wondering all the time, am I offending somebody else? It, that's just another form of slavery. So we're all working together for what this looks like, but consider how this applies to you. Maybe somebody who exercises your freedom at the expense of somebody else. Maybe you ought not to. A stumbling stone is something that trips up another and prevents them from growing. And remember, love builds up. What the strong could lawfully do, the weak in good conscience cannot. And therefore, eating meat was for them, somebody with weak, it was akin to, it was like sinning. Where they are right now, asserting your rights at this weak brother's expense or sister's expense is viewed by Paul as a sin against Christ himself. Pretty serious, he says. When you sin against your brother, you wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. My personal freedom, letting love limit my freedom, considering the other. You know, Paul writes about this elsewhere in, in Romans 15. He, he mentions this too. We who are strong ought to, to bear with the weakness of the weak. And not to please ourselves, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to edify him, to build him up. There are times when we have to lay aside preferences for the sake of building somebody else up. And look, in a relationship, again, there's times when we need to press somebody and say, I think you're misunderstanding. But this is to the strong. Are you willing to let go of a freedom for the benefit of somebody else? You know, questions like drinking alcohol. When, where? I already talked about playing cards, dietary choices, you know, forms of gambling, tobacco use, Sabbath regulations. There's a lot of people who have kind of specific ideas about 
when we observe the Sabbath and to what extent we observe it, these are all matters of debate that I think 1 Corinthians 8 speaks to. Here's some things to consider then if, you, if you're saying, okay, let's get practical about this. How, how do I sort this out, whatever the case may be? And here's, here's some just guidelines for thinking through that. Some things to consider. First, what is... Say, I don't know why this isn't going. There we go. Things to consider from this. What is safe from one believer may not be for another. And you have to know yourself and the other person too. True discernment requires love, not just knowledge. It's not just having the right information. It's how you apply that information in this context, in the midst of community, that's driven by love. What's the loving thing to do? Believers should not press their rights if doing so is detrimental to another believer's conscience. These are just kind of guiding things for you to consider when you're making the the myriad of choices before you. Can I watch this Netflix show or not? One believer's exercise of freedom can become a stumbling block to another. Isn't that clear in this passage? Your exercise of freedom can become a stumbling block to somebody. Factor that in. We must always consider other believers as brothers and sisters for whom Christ died. Now, that, that to me, actually, as I was thinking about this, is one of the most challenging things. When, when I think of somebody who's got a different perspective on some of these issues maybe than me, oftentimes I can look at the issue and put them in a category instead of see them as a brother or a sister whom I love. And let's face it, I probably don't really love them (laughs) that much, but I need to. Why am I not seeing them as a brother or a sister? See, there's something happening inside of me that's wrong too. And we sin against a brother or sister when we wound a weak conscience, and therefore we sin against Christ himself. Those are all things to consider. And I, 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 you know, sometimes... You can take a passage like this, and like I said, it can become, uh, can become enslaving. Uh, Paul's trying to emphasize freedom. But sometimes that freedom is the freedom to limit your actions for the sake of another. That, that is what freedom can look like. I, I think, again, about the, the laws of the road, too. You're, you're free to drive wherever you want to. But we have rules, right? If you say, you know, if you, I guarantee if you tell the policeman... I didn't see the light, sorry. You know, I didn't see the stop sign, sorry. You hit somebody else in the car like, oh, I didn't mean to. Okay. You still got to pay. Pay the piper. And so in that respect, there are limits or boundaries that actually when we observe them, open up freedom. And that's all Paul's trying to say, I would suggest. Some questions maybe to ask diagnostic questions, if you're in a situation like this that you can carry to the table, ask yourself in your exercise of your freedom, do I risk fellowship with another, with another believer if I do this? I mean, what what do I value more? Exercising my rights, because I know I can, or risking fellowship with somebody else? And you have to decide which, which does matter more to you. Am I I 
unnecessarily dividing the body. I mean, Paul's going to talk a lot about this. If your actions, are you just creating friction and division where it does not need to exist? That's a diagnostic question. If my actions might damage the face of another, am I willing to refrain? If, if it's possible that this could be a stumbling block, am, am I willing to refrain? Am I going to restrict myself, even in my freedom? Can I sacrifice a preference to serve the other? I mean, these, these questions, of course, this is the, I think this is the, the, the ground of humility. These are reflective questions that are trying to get down to the heart level, which Jesus is always after, that help guide our decision-making. Now, look, we're going to make different choices even with that grid, probably. And Paul wants to make sure at the end of the day that we're always driving ourselves back to that kind of humble space where we're not driven by knowledge, but rather love and service of the other. In this, we are seeking to walk in the way of Christ, aren't we? Here's a passage that comes back in my life again and again and again from Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should not look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. The Christian life's a life of dying, sometimes dying to preferences, dying to your own rights. But you're not doing anything that your Savior hasn't done. The very, the very beginning point of you saying you're a part of this family was Christ dying. And if anybody deserved to assert his rights, isn't it the Son of God through whom all things were created? Yet here he is laying them down, not asserting his rights so that you could know what it's like to be in the family of God. And so now you're a part of that family. How do you conduct yourselves? What, what grid do you use for making decisions about moving forward? Well, this is the beginning point, the humility of Christ. Us receiving that becomes then the motive for us in how we walk forward with others too. I wish there were absolute clarity on these things. But hopefully these kind of figure into it. I took that apple. I looked around. I took a bite. I took a bite of the apple. And I got to say, it felt a little odd doing it. I was trying to grapple with that afterwards. There was nobody on the bus around me that, uh, as we discussed it, thought it would be a stumbling block to them. And that was a question. Is anybody going to stumble if I take a bite of this apple? I'm like, I don't know. Let's see, kind of. <laughs> no, just a bunch of, frankly, white Americans who were very removed from Hindu temples. If, my, if the context was a little different, I probably wouldn't have done it. If, if I was wounding somebody's conscience, I wouldn't have taken a bite. But I like apples. <laughs> and I was hungry. And so I took a bite. And I had to sort through on the front end. We talked about it. What do we do with this apple? There's probably a thousand opportunities for you to do the same thing. And this is what's beautiful. God has given us a family. He's given us guidance, his word. He's given us his spirit. We need to avail ourselves of all those things in making these decisions and choices. And 
Like I said, don't worry. Paul's going to talk to those who have a weak conscience as well and challenge them. Hopefully, if you put yourself in the strong category, you're challenged as well to dive a little bit deeper and try to sort some of, through some of these realities. Father, we don't want this to be a vain exercise. We believe your word is true, living, active, sharper than any double-edged sword, pierces and penetrates, divides. It searches us. So search us now. Give us the way of wisdom, motivated by love, with a deep affection for the other. And that's, that's what the body of Christ ought to look like. And we confess oftentimes that we have, I know I do, our, our own pet freedoms that maybe we, we, uh, we nurture and, and cherish to the detriment of another. If that's the case, Holy Spirit, don't leave us off the hook. Show us. Because we do not want to sin against our brother and certainly to sin against Christ. Therefore, if what we do causes our brother to sin, may we never do it again. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.